Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this Sunday is the second Sunday in Lent. And during this Lent, we are on uh, a sermon series that I've entitled The Journey of Lent. We seek to try and deepen our relationship with God in this Lenten season as we prepare for the great celebration of Easter. And we started that last Sunday uh, with a sermon that looked at the nature of how we create meaning in our life and narrative in our life. We went over and talked about how there are objective events in history, there are objective of things that happen, but then, we're how, but then that's how we make meaning of those events in our lives, how we add value to them, how we create our own narratives. And that for us as people of faith, as we look back on our history, uh, it's important for us to see where God has been present in our life. How has God shaped us and guided us? And the more that we can name that in our own histories, looking backwards, then the more we're aware of God's presence as God works through our lives going forwards. So that first sermon looks at how God has worked in our past and and also how God, by extension, works in our present. And today we shift our attention to the future. Here we have a passage in Luke 13 where, surprise of surprises, the Pharisees actually come up to Jesus and try and help him out. Uh, So it's... A good warning, in case you always want to put the Pharisees in a bad box, you've got this passage here in Luke 13 where they're trying to do a good thing. So Jesus, the way, again, the way the evangelist Luke uh, structures his gospel, uh, the first eight plus chapters, uh, nine chapters are in Galilee. Then there's this long journey to Jerusalem uh, that then ends at the end of chapter 17. um, And then there's all this action in Jerusalem. So again, Matthew divides these different things in five different speeches. Luke has this big journey in the middle. And so Luke 13 comes at the center of that journey. And so while Jesus is journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem, these Pharisees are saying, hey, Herod, who is the ruler around Galilee, Herod's going to try and kill you. Remember, Herod uh, wasn't so friendly to John the Baptist, so this is a warning that he should take heed. He's trying to kill you. You should stop your journey. You should go somewhere else. You should hide. You should be safe. And Jesus' response is, nonsense, my destiny, my fate, where God is calling me is at Jerusalem. I am going to Jerusalem because that's where God has led me. That is my vocation. That's what God has intended for me. And so that's where I'm going. Regardless of what Herod tries to do to me, that's where I'm headed. What strikes me is, I mean, he has this incredible sense. Jesus has this incredible sense of vocation, of calling, of purpose. I wonder when that happened for Jesus, when that clicked. Do you think Jesus knew as a little boy that he had to end up in Jerusalem? If so, why did he take until his 30s before he actually made that journey? Do you think it was something that developed over time, that his vocation developed over time? He felt God continually working in his life as he became more and more aware of who he was and what his calling was? Was it something that took shape in his time in the desert, uh, those 40 days in the desert after his baptism, when finally it dawned on him, this is my destiny, this is my fate, this is my calling? And so the question for us today is, what is that Jerusalem for us? What's the calling for you? What's your vocation? How has that developed through the course of your life? This past week, I 
have really enjoyed getting into the book by Parker Palmer entitled Let Your Life Speak. Parker Palmer is a very well-known spiritual writer. He's a Quaker um, and someone who has written extensively throughout his life. And this particular book is one of the best meditations on the nature of vocation that I've ever come across. And Palmer says explicitly at the beginning, he said, one of the issues with vocation is that we are told, especially in our early lives, what we should be doing with ourselves. Society, our parents, our friends, other people tell us what we should be doing. And we, as we try and live into that, put on certain faces and try and live into that. Palmer talks about how at one point later in life, he looked back and he found an old newspaper article from high school where the high school newspaper interviewed him. uh, And one of the questions was, what do you want to do with your life? And Parker Palmer was like, well, I want to be a naval aviator and then I want to go work in advertising. He did nothing even remotely close to that. But he looks back and he's like, these were the things that I was being taught at the time that I should do, and therefore I thought that was my calling. For me, one of the most profound moments in my life when I was a teenager uh, was one evening, I've mentioned this before, but it's certainly relevant here, one evening I was out walking my dog, which I did every night dutifully, uh, walked the dog in this little route, uh, a route that I knew by heart. And I'm walking along, and I had this very profound epiphany. And what I saw before me that evening was my entire life basically flashed before me. It was me going to a good college and then going to work and working as an investment banker and a financier and going on a particular path. And it was such a profound thing. This is, what, this is clearly what society, what my parents, whatever, really wanted me to do. And it was so clear, it shook me to my core, and it actually left me in tears because I saw how miserable I would be if I actually did that. (laughs) Now, that's not to say that other people shouldn't do that calling, but just to say that it was very clear to me at that age that it was not mine. And also that I would have to push back against those expectations if I was actually to find whatever my vocation is. Can you think back about how your sense of vocation has changed over time? What sort of things you, were thought you, were, you thought you were supposed to do, but only later you realize those came from outside? Parker Palmer talks about, he's again, he's a good Quaker. He's like, each of us are made in the image and likeness of God. Each of us have some aspect of ourselves that is true to us, to our deep essence that God is calling us to be. We have to listen, not to these outside voices, but be very attentive to listening to what's going on inside of us. And that's a very difficult thing in society, to actually listen inside of us to where God might be calling us to be, to that inner light, as the Quakers would say. Now, one piece of advice that Palmer gives in this journey of vocation, this discernment of vocation, is to look at your early life, very early life. He tells the story of looking at his grandkids growing up. And again, it's nice being a grandparent because you're emotionally separated a little bit from when they're your kids. Um, he's looking at his grandkids growing up and struck as they were growing up by how much personality appeared at such a young age in his grandkids. His different grandkids were drawn to different things at a very young age, showed different interests at a very young age. He was so intrigued by this, he ended up taking notes on this, and he committed to sending them a letter later on when they were later in their teenage years by, saying, by the way, this is who you were when you were very young. 
And maybe it's a hint about who you are in your essence that God is calling you to be. So when I was a young kid, this won't come as too much of a shock, but uh, when I was a young kid, I loved, uh, I loved reading and like, soaking in as much knowledge as I could. So when I was uh, like in kindergarten and first grade, second grade, it was all about dinosaurs. I knew everything there was to know about dinosaurs or tried to soak it all up. And then it was about the solar system. Then it was about history, particularly military history. When I was in fourth grade, I would create these flashcards and quiz my father at the dinner table on various things about Civil War history, um, which thankfully he had a lot of patience with me. When I was in sixth grade, uh, whenever I had a free moment in sixth grade, I'd go into the middle school library. In the middle school library, there was a back room that not many people knew about. I'd go into the back room, take little biography, or biographies off the shelf, and I'd read, sit there and read biographies uh, on my own in the corner. That's the way I spent my free time. <laughs> and then, of course, I'd gather all this information in, and then I would just be bubbling over with excitement about sharing it with other people. So I knew that in my heart of hearts, whatever I did, if I wanted to look back at my early self, I would have to be a teacher at some, at, on some level, I'd have to teach. It's just hardwired into who I am from when I was a little, little kid. I want to soak up information and then share it. <laughs> Similarly, I, from a relatively young age, I love thinking about big questions of life, things like, why are we here? What is the point? What are we learning from these lessons of history? It wasn't just history for history's sake, but because it taught us something about how to live as human beings. These questions I wrestled with deeply. I didn't find, and you know, it was frustrating not to find many other elementary school kids who were wrestling with these issues. Um, and so these things were very true to me. But, you know, again, my siblings were very different. My brother, at a really young age, like we're talking early elementary school, was out setting up lemonade stands and selling lemonade to earn money. Uh, my aunt tells a funny story where after Christmas one time, uh, he then went to my aunt afterwards and tried to sell her back his toys uh, to make money off his toys. And he was like six years old at this time. Um, uh, my brother, as case may be, ends up working as an investment banker now <laughs> and does it very well. Um, but you see this, our, the, you know, Palmer's point is that our early histories can give us a sense of what our Jerusalem might be, what our inner calling might be. But there are other things too. He Palmer tells about his life. He went to Carleton College and then taught high school and then ended up getting a PhD in sociology at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. And after he finished his PhD, again, this is the late 60s, and he's like, I want to go tackle the urban problems of the world. I don't want to stick in the academic you know, ivory tower. And so he went to Washington, D.C. and became a community organizer. And as he's, he ended up finding himself being really run down and burnt out as a community organizer, but he got a great offer to work at Georgetown University as a tenure-track faculty member, but also allowed him to engage in community organizing. Basically, how do you teach these kids, like a good Jesuit school, how do you teach these kids to engage in the world? Well, he did that for a few years, got, was getting run down and had a sabbatical, and went to a Quaker retreat center in Pennsylvania, Petty Hill. And while he was there, he was really struck by, what should I be doing? I should be really happy now, but I'm not. And so he tells his friends this, and they respond in a, in a good Quaker fashion where they say, you know, have faith, a way will open for you. Have faith, a way will open for you. So Palmer said he kept thinking about this and rolling it over in his head. And then finally, he went to one of the elders in the community, this woman named Ruth. Uh, she's in her late 60s, and he went to her and he said, uh, you know, I'm struggling with vocation, and my friends keep telling me, you know, have faith, a way will open for me. It hasn't opened for me yet. And she paused, and she said, well, uh, I've been a Quaker for 60-some-odd years, and a way hasn't opened for me either. 
which of course he was crushed by. Um, But then she paused and she said, but a lot of ways have closed. And it made him think, a lot of ways have closed. And she's like, and that's pretty much the same thing too. When I, uh, my first job at a seminary was working as an undergraduate chaplain uh, at Harvard, and after that, I went to go teach high school at an Episcopal boarding school for a year. This opportunity fell in my lap, and I said, yes, uh, a year, year experience teaching, and maybe it'll open up a lot more. And I thought it seemed like the perfect fit at the time. This gave me the chance to teach history and teach religion, gave me a chance to coach rowing, uh, things that I love doing. Uh, it was also, it was a Christian school. I knew people had gone there. Uh, so culturally, it was very similar. Um, and I was like, this now, even though I'm not Episcopalian, I was like, I was still very excited about this. And while I was there, I had a great time and a great experience teaching, but I was looking for something more if I was to stay there longer term. And that year, there was a new chaplain at, uh, at Groton, and the new chaplain made it very clear that she wanted to be nowhere near the chapel. So she complained constantly about preaching on Sundays, and I would offer, I said, I'm the only other ordained person on staff, do you want me to preach on Sundays? And she said, no. So, okay. Uh, the entire year, I never once was asked to help with the liturgy at all at any, in any service, even though I went to every single one of them, and including all the Wednesday Eucharists. Never once was asked to help out in any chaplaincy duties. Um, now I was teaching ethics to seniors, and the ethics curriculum uh, was just this mishmash of sort of nothing really organized. And so I went to the headmaster, and I said, listen, I've got a proposal for the ethics program. I knew the headmaster was a big fan of David Brooks, the New York Times columnist. David Brooks is a big virtue ethics guy, if you're familiar with ethics. Big virtue ethics guy, pioneered by Alistair McIntyre and others in the early 80s. And so I went to the headmaster. I said, I've got a great idea. Let's create an ethics program at Groton that's modeled on virtue ethics, where you have the students actually cultivate virtues uh, in their entire daily life, both in their dorm life and service life and the, on the athletic field in the classroom, let's cultivate virtues and then use the classroom ethics time to reflect on those as, on how it forms you as an ethical human being. This would be a great way to distinguish Groton as a Christian school without being overly Christian to the non-Christians who were there. I thought this was a great idea. So I proposed this to him. And he's like, well, you know, right now we're raising funds for new buildings and our new STEM curriculum. And I don't have time for that. So I was like, okay. There were two doors, two ways that had closed that would have kept me at Groton. And I took that as a sign that maybe I should go somewhere else. And I did. And I don't regret that decision one bit. Sometimes a way might not open, but a way closes. One other point that Palmer makes about vocation is the hardest point that he makes on vocation. And that is, he says, in order to find our vocation, oftentimes we have to go uh, into the darkness. Palmer was someone, Parker Palmer is someone who is very open about his wrestle with clinical depression and how his struggle with clinical depression, which was paralyzing to him, helped him actually come to some deeper truths and realization about himself in that process. Palmer talks about how, um, you know, burnout, burnout is something that experiences that we experience when we're doing our best oftentimes to fulfill other people's expectations, but not actually doing something that's true to our vocation. If you're doing something that really is true to your vocation about who God has made you to be, you'll find, you oftentimes find there's, there is always, there's always those reserves there to help out there, but it's the other things that drive you into the ground. And that it's through those dark experiences that actually can open up ways about, hey, this might be what God is calling me to do. 
When I worked at the church in Ames, Iowa, uh, I threw myself into that. I gave every ounce of myself to the church in Ames, Iowa. And I found myself, after two years, horribly burnt out and run down. These, with physical symptoms of burnout and really just with nothing left in my tanks. Because I took on every task that I possibly could think of that might make the church grow because that's what I thought I needed to do in order to have the church thrive and be successful. Uh, I took way too much of the burden on myself and thought that I had to do it alone and it would let me all go charge ahead. And I found myself in one of the low points of my entire life. The reality is, for me, this might come as a surprise to some, is that I'm much less of an extrovert than I seem. (laughs) And the way that my introversion shows up is, again, I love going, I love being that kid who goes off in the corner of the library and reads. That's where I'm really happy. So when I'm in a situation where I've got to send a lot of emails and make a lot of phone calls, this, like, my anxiety just starts spiking. I know it sounds really silly, but, like, to make a phone call actually spikes my anxiety. (laughs) And when I'm, like, sending emails, like, my anxiety gets really spiked. And, like, I know, like, for some people, they're just like, I don't know why you're, I don't know why this is a big deal. I'm like, well, for me, sometimes this is actually really anxiety-inducing. And so a lot of administrative tasks of my job really just grind me into the ground. Um, and I keep pushing, keep, they grind me into the ground. And so I actually, at the end of this past year, I came to the conclusion, like, I've got to do something that feeds me more in order to carry on and not run into the same thing I ran into in Ames. And so at the end of this past year, I decided I have to get back to writing. I have to make a commitment to write and be creative and do something. So for the last two months, I've been carving out time during the week to write. Uh, and this novel in Nigeria that I wrote before I got here, you know, God willing, I'll be done with this next draft tomorrow. So there actually is progress here. And even when I'm done with that, I, I know that if I'm not feeding that in some kind of way, that chance to, to think more deeply about things, to pause and consider things, to have some more time to myself, to have time of creativity. If I don't do that, regardless of what happens to the books, I don't care what happens to the books. If I don't do that, there's some part of me that'll be shriveled up and I'll you know, run the risk of possibly running into burnout. So how about all of you? The good news is, is that we're not Jesus. And we don't have to be. And that's okay. Our destiny, our calling, our fate may not lead us to death in Jerusalem. We don't have to take up the same cross that Jesus took up or endure the same sufferings that Jesus endured. But what we do have to do is figure out what God and what Jesus is calling us to be and how we are to witness ourselves in this world that so desperately needs it. If you, are, if you are created in the image and likeness of God, you are created with a certain essence, a certain being that this world needs. The world needs your gifts, however they're manifested. And it is a tough journey to figure out exactly what those might look like. But I would challenge all of us as a Lenten discipline in this next week, as a Lenten discipline in this next week, to think deeply about what that inner essence might be. To think about what you were like as a young kid. What are those things that drove you and you did as a young kid that might be still a part of your essence today? Think about some of the ways that were closed to you and some of the ways that were opened and how that shaped your life and how that might give hints of how God is pushing you in one direction or another. And also try and be brutally honest with yourself. What is driving you? What are the things that are, what are the dark places you can go into to discover more deeply about where that vocation might lie? to ask the hard questions, 
Because it's in that that we can find our calling. And if we all live into our calling, then we're doing what it is that Jesus wants us to do. We're trying to live into creating the kingdom of God.